So I don't know how to do a cold open on this one because, I don't know, we've been talking and trying to do this episode. It feels like, when, when did all this Israel-Palestine stuff start? When did it kick off? Last week? Thursday? When, when did the, the, the fighting start? Monday before last. So, oh, so it's been like a uh, week and a half. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, God, I, I don't even remember anything. We recorded last week, did we? Yeah, but you remember, I it was a Tuesday, so it was the day after things started to heat up, but it still hadn't become a full-blown issue. Yeah, yeah. So we didn't actually end up talking about it much except for like one or two lines where I just made a general comment on it. Yes, I remember. And then I said, and I said, yeah, let's not get into this because we'll just spend the entire thing. And then we've been talking about trying to like do this. And, you know, we've, we've, we've made a, a, an unsuccessful pack to record on Mondays and (laughs) it's just not working out right now. So, I mean, I think it's probably just good to tell our audience uh, that uh, we're recording on a Wednesday, Wednesday. What's the date today? It's the 19th, I think. And that's just to situate it because, you know, events, dear boy, keep happening. But finally, we will get to talk a little bit about uh, Israel-Palestine. I think um, I think there's a lot to talk about because you've been very active. You're out there. Uh, yeah, that's fair to say, you're, I think. You're, you're becoming a, a media celebrity. Is this the most TV you've done ever? Maybe since the killing of Khashoggi. Khashoggi, um, you were out? A few years back. Yeah. I was doing a lot of media around that. And then before then, the Arab Spring. So I guess there are these moments where big things happen and it sort of becomes all-consuming. It's also relatively rare now that when um, Middle East issues become front-page news. So it's also a sign that there is growing media attention on the region, when traditionally there hasn't been. I mean, even under Trump, there there was usually a Trump tie-in. So with Saudi Arabia and, and Khashoggi, you know, Trump was a big part of that story and why Trump doesn't care about human rights and Trump's ties to Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince. So now that we no longer have Trump and we have a relatively boring president, I think that there's more of a, more of a willingness to kind of re-engage on some of these bigger questions, which I think is good. I guess I guess it's interesting. Uh, maybe that's a, a an interesting way to, to sort of dive into this. Um of the three pieces that you wrote, one was for us, one was for the Atlantic, the other one was for Brookings, and yeah. it's the Brookings piece that that um, maybe is a good place to jump into here because you're saying like the region and there's interest in it, but it's it's in in effect it's it's the opposite of it. It's this is a an unexpected eruption of interest uh, in this issue that even in your Brookings piece you you describe uh, you know um, has in fact. Uh, been marginalized almost sort of um, systemically by through the Abraham Accords, which, uh, you know, you had these dictatorial regimes sign a peace with Israel, uh, which basically decoupled uh, the Palestinian question from, call it the fate of the Middle East. I know you wouldn't agree with that. You'd say that those two are, are, are intrinsically linked, but um, but, but that's what the Abraham Accords were set were, out to do. Were set up, set up to do. Yeah, and they also did do that to some extent. Now the question is: Is it sustainable? Is it good? Well, those are separate questions. Very separate questions, right? Yeah, separate, like sustainable and good. I think that gets at what yeah, I really want to talk to you about. Of, that. I'm giving yeah, you yeah. a list of different. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to say that those are yeah, like yeah, combined, yeah. but. Mm, mm. And, you know, part of what I say in my, my Brookings piece is that this isn't new. There has been an effort really since day one, it, not sorry, not day one, not since 1948, but since the Camp David Accords in 1978 
to basically have a separate peace. So the Egyptian president, Anwar Sadat, um, did not prioritize the Palestinian question in his negotiations with Israel. So really since then, Arab leaders have always been thinking of ways to neutralize the issue for themselves, even if it comes at the cost of the Palestinians. So in that regard, I'm very critical of Arab regimes and the role that they've played. I wouldn't go so far as to say that the 1978 Camp David Accords were a mistake, because obviously it prevented war between Israel and Egypt, and that's a very important objective, obviously. But the fact that but there was a way to do it differently. And that's when Sadat and Egypt had considerable leverage because Egypt was concerned, sorry, Israel was concerned about the largest Arab army. Egypt was a force to be reckoned with, not a great army, but a lot of people. <laughs> so that's a leverage that Egypt had. And then by entering into a peace deal without addressing the Palestinian issue, the Palestinians got a little bit screwed there um, because Egypt could no longer argue on their behalf because it had lost its leverage after the Camp David Accords. Yeah. I, you know, as someone who doesn't do the Middle East, uh, who, you know, I try to be a, a generalist and a, you know, a news reader and keep up with this stuff. And, and honestly, really, the only time I've, I've uh, at all gotten engaged was that trip that, that uh, you and I took however many years ago now, two years ago, uh, uh, to Israel and the West Bank. You know, I, 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 I have to say that, that the Abraham Accords and the, call it the success of the Abraham Accords, what they managed to achieve, this decoupling, right? Um, is something that is uh, was striking to me the the outcome of it. It's striking because uh, for as long as I've been paying attention to coverage and analysis of the region, without again feeling like I'm a participant or, or like contributing anything to it, just sort of passively getting it, it was a kind of thing that was it was an article of faith. Perhaps after Camp David, but ever since then was that. Uh, lasting peace in the Middle East runs through the uh, Arab-Israeli conflict. Not the Arab-Israeli, the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And and this is why I, it's interesting that you say, uh, you know, when we started just now, you're saying uh, the world cares again. I mean, we do have this boomlet now because it's a very telegenic and nasty war that uh, there's a lot of coverage for it for the last... Uh, but, but again, as you note in your piece... Um, the Arab regimes are quiet. Perhaps they're, you know, pressuring behind scenes, but nothing's coming of it. And, you know, uh, our friend Ben Haddad is actually, uh, I think is, he's got a piece, I don't know what should be coming out soon, uh, is making a, a parallel case about how a kind of sea change has happened also in how Europeans are approaching it. The Europeans are still committed to uh, Palestinian statehood, end of occupation, the rest of it. But, but that element of, I think it was just a truism for me growing up and watching just a series of, you know, failed peace processes, attempts just unravel. And it was just, it was just a mantra is like, we can't get the Middle East settled without this. Now, arguably the Middle East is not settled. It's not like the Abraham Accords settled the Middle East or anything like that. But, but it is notable this time around, how that linkage is broken, or you think it's being reestablished. I mean, talk about- uh, Look, I mean- the linkage is broken. I don't think Arab regimes are going to change their approach because of this conflict in Gaza. But putting aside what Arab regimes want and what they think and what they perceive, I think that the bottom line is that Palestine is going to be a problem 
for the foreseeable future. That we've always been saying the status quo is untenable, almost like a mantra, which I think is is also a cliche in the sense that, well, technically, st- status quos, even if they're really bad, can last and uh, they can last a long time. So when people say, well, oh, it's either a two-state solution or a one-state solution, I mean, there is a third option, which is the indefinite perpetuation of just this over and over and over. Yeah. But then the question is, um, I mean, but it's going to keep on dragging outside actors in, and it's combustible in ways that we can't entirely anticipate. Because if we're also talking about intercommunal violence between Arabs and Jews in Israel, so here we're not talking about Israel-Palestine, we're talking about citizens of Israel— some of whom, many, most of whom are Jewish, obviously, but then there's also the 18 to 20 percent that's Arab. They are Arab Israelis, and um, and you've you've had prominent Israeli figures even talk about the prospect of civil war, civil conflict. Um, that's been dialed down. I think it's cooled down since uh, compared to the first couple of days, where I think there was really really intense concern about that. But there's just a lot of factors that you can't necessarily account for. And you also can't account for how they interact with each other. I mean, totally agree, right? I mean, and it's, it's the, 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 I think there's two things going on. It's, it's on the one hand, uh, there's this assumption um, that uh, the status quo can't go on, which is false. But then there's the other built-in assumption of even that statement is that the status quo remains the status quo. And as you said just now, like, it's it's subtly shifting all the time. I mean, you know, I, it's it's at best a game of, of Israel finding new ways to keep a lid on the situation to their benefit indefinitely. And it's, it's I mean, that was the thing that really struck me on our trip uh, was basically this feeling that among Israelis that um, this was a, a nuisance but not an existential nuisance, that, uh, you know, wars every five or so years where rockets rain down, kill a a handful of people, but really just a handful, destroy some property, disrupt life for sure, but that it's it's totally manageable was the yeah. sort of sense, and that um, uh, you know I mean the some of the the creative thinking uh, about uh, you know this I guess I guess it would be most charitably put as like the one and a half state solution right, which is disengagement from Palestinian communities in the West Bank you know uh, not done the same way as in Gaza but disengaging um, and basically walling in the cities is what it sounded like to me, uh, creating like walled in roads and tunnels between the cities and just, you know, putting outlets to, uh, I forget what it was, like to Haifa and, and like a road to uh, uh, an airport in, in, in Jordan, right? Like, and, yeah. and there's your there's your state, you get no army, you get no sovereignty, you're basically contained, but, you know, enjoy your walled-in cities and, and the ability to, without checkpoints, go between them. Uh, obviously, the Israeli security apparatus would be monitoring all this very carefully, so, you know, not, nothing could be plotted and planned behind that. Um, it just, it struck me at the time that that's all very plausible, you know, that that's, that this status quo is very plausible. The thing that's, it's the, the intercommunal violence for me is one of the things I was like, whoa, okay, this is, this is new and, and troubling. And especially coming from the Balkans, you know, it's, 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 I guess I'm, I, one of the stories, one of the things that struck me about Israel, in fact, was it's what a, a mishmash of, of people 
even you know among among Jews it isn't there, but also you know a certain kind of pluralism. But I also have generally like no faith in nation states being able to sustain pluralism. So I was always puzzled by the fact that 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 uh, Israeli Arabs actually seem to be you know not an issue for Israel. So you know having it bubble up right now, you know uh, that gives me thought that that the status quo ain't really a status quo. And then the other thing that I'm not seeing that many people talk about is, is you know, uh, that the the dreaded two or three front war, right? If, if Lebanon starts uh, getting involved and raining rockets down on Israel, these are the costs of pertain of thinking you can hold the status quo and, and it may not be sustainable. Yeah, but all these costs are um, sur- surmountable for Israel. So even if there is increased intercommunal violence, they will be able to deal with it in some way. Now, how they deal with it might be something that some of us consider morally troubling. I don't I don't think that, I mean, the folks on the far right who are allies with Netanyahu talk about ethnic transfer even of Arab Israelis. I don't think that's realistic in part because, well, maybe this is just me being optimistic about norms. But I just don't think it's plausible that a country that wants to, pre- that always presents itself, even in the midst of war, you always hear this line, well, Arabs have more rights in Israel than they do in the rest of the region. Israel is the only democracy factually untrue. Tunisia, well, Lebanon, a fl- very flawed democracy, obviously, depending on how you classify Iraq, again, a sort of half-flawed democracy. Anyway, but, but sure. who cares about facts, you know? <laughs> but um, so, look, I don't think it's likely. I think even Benjamin Netanyahu, he, I mean, he's ideological in his own way, but he's also a pragmatist. He's mm. a survivor, mm. and he knows that there are certain things that just would be very difficult to pull off, uh, especially if you have a Democrat in office. Now, Trump doesn't give a shit about Arabs or citizens. He doesn't even know that. 20% of Israel is Arab. But if you have someone like Biden in office, it does, I think, sort of offer some more obvious constraints. The 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 Israeli like right-wing idea, as far as I understand it on that, though, is not to do that in peacetime. I think the idea is once the rockets start raining down in Lebanon, uh, then for, you know, I mean, we did it with the Japanese in World War II for, for much less of a reason. It's just like round, round, round up the troubled minority uh, except you know we would they wouldn't put them in camps they'd probably just expel them and I think that's the that's expel the expel them to where though well, I don't know uh, parts of the West Bank and then drive them into Jordan that's but then what of, would happen to their citizenship oh, I mean just like strip it I mean I don't even know war. if there's an easy way to do that though you know I mean so it's it's um and maybe that's a, another way to to then uh, you know talk about like I, I think what what what's been striking to me listening to your arguments and your reading your essays carefully and um your uh you know interventions on tv and stuff and like we that. should know too that demir actually did his homework he listened to almost the entire two hours of my debate with alan dershowitz yeah on megan kelly's show i did um, I, I also the only thing i haven't watched is your just recorded wolf blitzer interview and your your morning joe appearance i didn't li- watch those i watched your first wolf blitzer oh okay uh, uh, uh Appearance. Wow, he's he's a true uh, a true scholar of my media appearances here. <laughs> well, no, but but you know, uh, I mean, I, I think that your your back and forth with uh, with Dershowitz was. I really encourage everyone to go listen to it. I think it's 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 uh, you know an hour and a half well spent. Um, 
but it's uh i guess i guess what's you know uh you you talk about like what how how would you achieve that you know stripping of citizenship um and and it's 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 interesting that um i think in a lot of your 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 uh interventions in the last few days there's a a uh there's an undercurrent there about a certain kind of regulated conflict and the importance of regulating conflict. I mean, I feel like all your arguments come down to this idea of conflict as, you know, I wouldn't say it's, it's like a ritualized display of, you know, displeasure that needs to, you know, have its its violence kept at a minimum, but but a certain sense of, of, um, of order to war. Um, which again, I have to say, I mean, you know this about me. I, I'm I'm always perplexed by when people make these arguments. Not perplexed when sort of human rights activi- activists make this argument, but I'm I'm I find it I find it easy to dismiss when it's just human rights people making the case. But you know, we've known each other for a while, and let's do this. And this podcast, we're we're constantly <laughs> talking about these sort of you know uh, trying to excavate this sort of stuff. So. Uh, yeah, I don't know. So what's really your question? <laughs> My question is, is um, you find it just like, you know, I don't think it's likely that, that uh, Israeli Arabs at this point, certainly not in this conflict, would have their citizenship stripped. But you find it just outlandish to even contemplate that such a thing would happen. It's, it's just it's an echo of, I think, uh, your insistence about collateral damage. Uh, on this, and you know, um, your argument is a moral one. I'll also note from what we were saying earlier, uh, not just you, but I think the entire Palestinian cause has now had to fall back on purely a moral and humanitarian argument because you don't have the you don't have the other you know all peace runs through this conflict, so we have to pay, pay attention to this conflict. It's all now the horrors of war and make it stop. Um, I just I, I listening to the your argument with with Dershowitz, I kept sort of wanting to say, but Shadi, it's war, and, and which is sort of what he said. It is sort of what he said. I mean, uh, I, I think that the the interesting thing about Dershowitz, where even I part ways with him, or where even he parts ways with me, is a better way to put yeah. it, <laughs> is that he's a lawyer and he has a he 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 gestures towards some of these international you know, law uh, elements. So he's dismissive of it. He's, he's adequately dismissive of international law uh, for my own taste. But pr- I mean, I, I'm even more dismissive of it as these sets of like norms that govern international behavior and wars. And so the reason why I'm, I'm, it's not, it's not that I'm dissatisfied, but that what I want to engage you on is, is this, is that I feel that, 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 that your writing on this has been polemical rather than analytical. Maybe that's the right way to put it. And the goal of the polemic is to point out, to just gesture at this injustice, and that by gesturing at this injustice, uh, that that's enough, basically. To, or that's where your argument has ended, I think, in most of the stuff you've done in the last week and a half. I don't know. Re- react to that. Okay. This is good. This is going to be good. You guys are, I think, in for a treat. I don't know yet because I haven't actually said anything about this and I'm going to start right now. Okay. A couple things. What was interesting about Dershowitz is that unlike you, and I think this is what you're getting at, 
he maintained the fiction that Israel does its best to minimize civilian casualties. He still felt a need. He then kind of muddied the waters by kind of questioning, oh, he's like a baker during the day. Then he transforms into a Hamas member. And that's where I, I was like, whoa, are you going there, man? Because obviously that has implications if you're sort of questioning like, oh, well, there's a blurry line between civilian and Hamas sympathizer and Hamas member. Okay, but still, he is maintaining the fiction that Israel is trying to fight a just war and a good war under the circumstances. I think what you're trying to say is that war is war, and this idea of minimizing civilian casualties isn't really, that's not really the issue, because people die in wars, and why should we expect otherwise? Is that fair? Is that well, I, I just add is that I'm not. I'm not. You're not saying that you agree with no. that. You're just saying this is the reality. Well, I, I mean, I'll just a couple of caveats just to those narrow <laughs> points, right? Uh, one, uh, I'm sympathetic to the idea of people of the 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 blurry line between civilian and fighter. That was the the it was the story of a lot of um, uh, Serbian insurrectionists uh, in towns and mixed towns would go. They'd like, you know, there'd be teachers during the day and then, you know, at night go into the hills and lob mortars into, 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 into towns. I mean, that was, you know, it was a, it was a thing. So I don't, I, I have no idea what the hell is going on in there. And I, I, I'm not willing to, to make, you know, any sort of case one way or the other on it. Um, the, the other thing that I would say that just so, so I don't sound like a complete monster is, is that, uh, I do think that, that, the PR element of, of moral considerations is important, and I do think that Israel tries to, uh, you know, uh, leverage that because it recognizes that uh, if it were to go full ape and, you know, do—I mean, even—surely you ad admit that, like, they could flatten the place and, like, kill however many millions of people overnight, likely, if they wanted to. They don't do that, of course. I mean, that's the slippery slope of, of you know, capabilities. So well, I mean, could they be doing more? I mean, to, to minimize casualties even more, presumably. Um, but, you know, they're not doing nothing. You know what's funny? That this is actually the – some version of this is the response that I get from a lot of folks on Twitter when I talk about the civilian casualties issue and proportionality. And they'll respond like, oh – um uh oh you want it proportional oh um well israel could like level the entire place and destroy gaza so like you should be happy i didn't say uh, no, that no, no you're course. not saying yeah, that I'm, yeah. I'm saying a version no a yeah. version of that that it could be a lot worse yeah. no no do me don't no no of course <laughs> no, no, I, I need to defend myself because i do think i'm coming from a pretty dark place on this okay. but i, I just want to defend myself from from like yeah yeah sure I don't. from from like the partisan darkness that i think <laughs> this 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 whole uh no but it's interesting that you almost like not okay not you the yeah. people who i'm talking to on twitter some of them there's almost like this bloodlust like oh if only we were unsure chained and unleashed look at what we could really do and that's what you should be comparing with like the worst case scenario if israel didn't care at all and what it's actually doing currently but anyway let's not get yeah, let's, no. let's kind of get back so part of the reason that i think this might sound weird to some folks who are listening but part of part of it too is that to some degree i believe in israel mm-hmm in the sense that 
I believe in any democracy, and I hold Israel to the standard that I would hold every single advanced democracy. And uh, so I'm not necessarily talking about like Indonesia or Malaysia, sort of like some of these uh, more deeply flawed democracies. I I think it's fair to say that Israel is um, advanced in certain ways. I don't know if it's fully consolidated. Yes, I think it's fair to say that it's, you know, it's a consolidated democracy. It's been a democracy for the entirety of its existence, which is actually relatively rare for a country, which is worth noting. So with that in mind, and someone who's spent time in Israel, and in some ways has a deep respect for Israel and what it's been able to do, perhaps somewhat grudging, because it makes me feel sad that Arabs can't get their act together. And, you know, um, you know, Arabs should be able to build successful societies just like Israel has, and Israel's right next door. But I think there's something that Israelis are rightfully proud of when they see what they've built, right? And some of that also has to do with the democratic norms, even though they are um, somewhat fragile now, and Netanyahu has, I think, pushed the limits in a way perhaps similar to Trump. But Arabs do have significant rights. They are second-class citizens, and I've been very critical about that. I think it's unacceptable. But there is something to be said for the fact that the third largest faction um, at different points over the past over the past five, six years has been the Arab the Arab joint list and its successors, basically. That's impressive that, you know, um, and that even um, not just an Arab party, but an Islamist party in Israel was close to becoming, and who knows, might even still be in the future. And 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 Bibi's reign. That's the thing. Like, imagine <laughs> yeah. that. The Islamists yeah. actually end Bibi's reign. This is one of the craziest stories that I wish I was following more, but there there is um there is quite literally a Muslim Brotherhood offshoot in Israel. So these are Israeli citizens who yeah. speak fluent Hebrew. Yeah. They're Islamists and they kind of were sympathetic to Bibi. Yeah, yeah. And it's just crazy that they uh, is is that I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. But hold on, I thought I thought that the, the coalition was going to actually bring down BB. That there were so no so others were were in fact courting him. Now I forget too. I, I'm out of my depth and I'm following the story, but it's fascinating. I mean, it, it anyway. To your the point, point about is they were being yeah. courted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, by both by both sides and all this. Um, so so because because of all this, I just I look at Israel and I think to myself. They're not going to do war the way, say, the Saudis do war. Mm-hmm. The, the the war in Yemen, for example, which is um, magnitudes worse than what Israel is doing in Gaza. I don't think that's a good comparison because I don't think Israel should aspire to be more like Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Okay, but let's. Um, well, so, okay, but let me let me ahead. just address yeah. the um, the polemical versus analytical. And I and I feel like there's also things I want to ask you about some of what you've tweeted. Yeah, because yeah. I, I I guess like just as you're sort of taking interest in some shifts in how I'm approaching this particular issue compared to other things we've talked about on the podcast, I think that I'm seeing I can see in a more sort of um, crystallized way some of the divergences on the moral questions because of what's going on right now. They've always been lingering underneath the surface in our conversations. Mm -hmm. Now I think they're coming out. Yeah. So polemical versus analytical. Okay. 
Well, I tried. So I wrote three different pieces. Each of them had a different level of polemics for different audiences. So the most polemical one was the one that I wrote for us, yep. for Wisdom of Crowds. Yep. And I'll just do a little plug here that it was a Friday essay. So that does mean it's for subscribers only. I would encourage you guys, if you're interested, to kind of um, do do the inevitable. You know that you want the Friday essay. That's right. And maybe this is the time. Yeah. But anyway, it was titled somewhat suggestively, I'm angry about Palestine. Should you be? Question mark. Mm-hmm. With the implication being that the right answer to that question was yes. Right. Of course, Betteridge's Law of Headlines says if you ask a question in the headline, the answer is always no. Oh, always no. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. Um, but in this case, I said I'm angry, so it would be weird no, of if course. Wisdom of Crowd subscribers of decided to answer the question differently yes. than their dear co-leader. Right. Leader. <laughs> leader of their brains. Yes. So, and and because I knew that I was writing this for, um, you know, a smaller crowd, I was like, I'm, this is going to be shaddy, shaddy, unchained, unplugged. This is like my, uh, this is what I've been thinking and feeling in a visceral sense, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The piece I wrote for the Atlantic was more. You're, you'll know where I stand, but there will be some effort at analysis where I try to point out where the two conflicting narratives diverge. I was very clear about which narrative I'm on the side of, but yep. I'm like, this is where we part ways, yep. and it's worth understanding this. And then the Brookings piece was more about how Arab regimes were re- reacting to the crisis, more de- definitely more analytical. So. Um, but the polemics, especially like in my some of my media appearances, tweets, and all of that, is at some basic level, I actually care about live Palestinian lives lost. Sure, understandable. And I, and I want I want the killing to stop. I want less people to die. And at a fundamental level, I think that's part of our. So ultimately, what is our role as people who are writers or analysts or academics? We obviously care a lot about analyzing and we want to be accurate, but at the same time, we want to make the world, apologies for the cliche, but we want to make the world a better place. Like even at some basic level, that's what think tanks are meant to do. So you look at um, Brookings or the Atlantic Council or Carnegie Endowment, all of them in their missions say something about the world being safer more prosperous for right-wing uh, think tanks. It's free. The mm-hmm. lad, um, well, I think probably all of them talk about freedom in some way. Yeah. But maybe right-wing ones emphasize a free market and stuff like that a little bit more. But there, there is a—it's not just—there is something that we care about. Sure. It's not just this kind of endlessly dispassionate analysis. So in some ways, yeah, I think we're looking at a conflict— And does the U.S. have an interest in less Palestinians being killed? An interest, right? I mean, that's 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 yes. But you see, here's here that's so many ways. Uh, One one (laughs) one interesting one is that that what I you know laid out in some of the the groundwork of this episode, though, right? Is that uh, you know you said that there's more attention being paid to the Middle East and the region all of a sudden. I'm I'm I I think that the Abraham Accords, if they hold and if they're you know uh, continue to hold throughout this crisis, um, has reduced this issue to just a question of dead people, as opposed to something more than that, which is what I would argue elevates an issue to actually getting people engaged. Now I I I 
as I said to you on Twitter, I said to you in person, you know, offline on this, it's like I, I, um, I understand the, uh, the emotional appeal of engagement, and I certainly don't begrudge anyone polemics. Um, but, but for example, you know, uh, the most analytical piece, the Brookings piece, now it's a short piece, you, you, you're not going to fit the world into it. Uh, I did think it was interesting that the, the word Iran didn't appear once in it, that, you know, you, you framed it in a way that it's, and it's not false how you framed it, that it's a means of washing their hands of this, of this pesky thing. But the, 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 I don't know if it's a funny paradox, but it's like that, that the paradox of the Abraham Accords is that, uh, Obama's their father. Uh, and it's, it's by doing JCPOA that, that in fact created this kind of imbalance that, that drove these, uh, implacable, uh, foes together into, and to, you know, again, your point stands, they've wanted to, you know, disentangle this stuff and not have to be constantly pulled into this for, for all sorts of reasons. But but it's that's missing, even in your most analytical piece, to tackle the region and the complexities of this problem. The complexities of this problem, I would say, for the Biden administration, for the United States, is trying to figure out a way. I, I'm almost certain this is the last thing they wanted to happen right now, because it sullies their nice rhetorical, you know, BS in my uh, mind, but they're, they're, the, the thrust of their entire launch of their uh, presidency about restoring human rights is the center of this. Obviously, you know, this complicates that narrative a little bit, um, especially if it goes on much longer. Um, but, you know, you can't, you can't even, I think, think about U.S., what the U.S. is trying to do here or struggling with here unless one takes a slightly broader view that I do think, you know, in your more polemical mode this week has deprived your readers of, maybe. Because a human rights-only approach to this, like, oh, how horrible, while true, it's, I mean, a true human rights believer, and you, you, you're more than welcome to say that, obviously, this is, we should prioritize this above everything else, and if this kind of injustice is being done, not even in our name, but with our support, even implicitly, everything else goes below that, that's fine. I, we just need to acknowledge that, that you know, this, I think the, the whole, you know, U.S.-Israeli relationship and how it works, it's not very clear to me all the valences and why it persists and how it persists in these ways, but certainly it's complicated. And the calculations that the Biden administration is doing right now are at least somewhat tied to a broader regional play that they have in mind, I think. But I don't know. You're the expert. Okay, well, I don't believe the U.S. has any compelling national interest to not care about civilian losses in Gaza. So it's not as so. In other words, if we cared more, if Biden cared more, I don't think that would hurt us in any obvious way. One potential argument is that we piss off the Israelis, and that makes the uh, a new Iran deal more challenging because we're using our our political capital on this instead of saving it up for trying to get Israel to acquiesce to the Iran deal. I don't find that particularly compelling because I see the U.S.-Israel relationship as one where ultimately one side needs the other more. I mean, the U.S. is a superpower. Israel is a powerful country, but it still it still needs the U. It still needs the U.S. in a fundamental sense where I, I don't think the reverse is necessarily true or as true. But I would, but on your bigger point, and I, I'm curious how you would respond to this, 
I think I would say it's in America's national interest to be moral. And this is, and it might be a cop-out because it's an easy way to sort of intertwine the two concerns and to make my case more effectively. Because if I'm able to say, well, oh, it's not just about morality, it's it happens to be the case that it's in our inter- it's in our national interest to do moral things for X, Y, and Z reasons. And I think the reasons there, which I'll mention briefly, is if it if American power is tied to the idea that we offer something better than our challengers do. And here I'm talking about whether it's Russia, China, other revisionist powers, whatever you want to call them, that if we were just a country that pursued in a very narrow sense our national interests like any other country and we weren't any different in that regard, I think that our power would decrease significantly because there wouldn't be a reason to rally behind the American idea and the America's idea for the world in the coming decades, which I think will be conflictual. We have to have something to say to the rest of the world as they're becoming tempted by China, as China is offering more economic incentives and trade cooperation, so on and so forth. There still has to be something compelling about what we offer. And that's part of, I think, I don't think many of the Biden uh, Biden folks would disagree with me on that. They probably agree and say, yes, and that's something that Biden himself has talked about. Why does he talk about um, the return to human rights and values and the fight between democracies and autocracies? Because he sees that as our built-in advantage. So if we're letting something like what's happening in Gaza persist for the foreseeable future, And if that undermines our case that we are more moral, then we can't make the broader case about why American power is better than the alternatives. Well, a couple of things, right? It's it's uh, it just gets back to, you know, what you think your role is? What do you think it is you're doing in this debate? I mean, I I would happily concede to you that. Well, let, let me just clarify. I'm not I feel like the the problem with when I do a critique like this or other people like me do a critique like this, it's you just want America to, I don't know, be like Bismarck's Germany or something, just scheming all the time with, you know, just no recourse to this other stuff. I think it's 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 just it's, it's just not ever going to happen. The United States will always have these parts to it, these moral considerations, and there'll always be uh, attention there inside. And it's fair to say, you know, what are we as writers trying to do about it? I, I think, though, that there is a the, – the, the line between writing that, that, you know, I'm enthusiastic about and activism exists. And while I wouldn't say that there isn't a, a case to be made for a – like a much more full-throated approach – to the world that is through the prism of human rights and constantly saying that we're always falling short on it. I think at, at a certain point when you make that case so stridently, you, you become an activist. What do, you, what do you mean become an activist? What does that really mean, though? Well, I mean in the sense that, that uh, in the world as it is and in America as it is, uh, compromises will necessarily have to happen. Um, and I, I don't think that those compromises are ever easy frequently not to be celebrated, 
but necessary. And so I think that that there's a uh, again, well, you can make I, I suppose a uh, a nuanced argument. I suppose, and I'll even grant you that that you know this the soft power argument is one such thing. Though I don't really buy it because I think we're talking to ourselves. We're not talking to the world. The world, the world has a better sense of who we are with all of our complexities and and shortcomings and how it works than this you know this story we have with ourselves about redemption and like saving the world. And I, I think it's 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 striking when you when you sort of go back and forth uh, how much we're talking to ourselves about this sort of stuff. And that's what I'm getting at. It's just like I, I think that that again, it's fine to be engaged politically, domestically to shift policy uh, in this direction because you think it's the right thing to do, and or you have a particular sympathy for this particular conflict, and therefore you're more engaged in this one rather than any other ones in this. But I do think that that you know, um, I guess what I'm always looking for is is that 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 complexity, that, that moral ambiguity in an argument that, I don't know, makes you sort of really grapple with the nastiness of the world. You know, it's not, I guess is what it is, is that, that, that I always approach these things as, as necessarily, uh, that they're not going to be heroic, that we may be able to, you know, make the world a better place, as you say, but it's, it's, it's only through a bunch of compromise and, and dealing with, a, a properly tragic set of circumstances and trade-offs that we avert the worst rather than, you know, reach at the best, basically. Now, again, this is... So I would like to avert the worst, which is um, mass suffering in, in... I mean, if mass suffering in Gaza is bad, mm. I want to avoid a very bad situation. I'm not even talking about any kind of ideal aspiration right yeah, now. Yeah. All I'm talking about is blocking excess. Yeah. So why doesn't that fit into your vision? I'm not even talking about some like um, moral notion of like a one state solution in in part because I don't think it's practical. Yeah. And um, I think that if I was fantasizing about a one state solution, that would be like a little bit analytically weak. Yeah, because I I just don't see how it can ever happen, um, at least in our, you know, for the for many for many years and decades to come. So I mean, so what would you say to that? I'm just trying to block excess. I mean, again, um, this this then gets back to I guess the 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 question of um, well, I again I get 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 confused here on 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 the sort of stuff. I I think that that what you are doing is. Uh, trying to leverage uh, the United States part-time commitment to a certain set of human rights in order to, in the, call it the real world, the world outside the United States, the anarchic, you know, international order, to affect an outcome, not a final outcome, but an outcome in the world out there, which is U.S. pressure on Israel forcing them to pull back on this latest offensive, right? That's, okay, and, that's yeah. and that's fair. Again, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not accusing you of doing anything bad there. <laughs> I'm just saying what I look for in analysis is to is to complicate, you know, all of that at this point. Like, for example, what I don't fully appreciate, I still don't fully really understand, though I've, I have been again sort of digging around a little bit to try and wrap my head around what are the equities um, in a lot of this stuff that actually prevent Biden from just 
picking up the phone and being like, all right, cut it out right now. Like, what really is it? Is it, is it you know, uh, whatever, this, this kind of historical sympathy that, that, that the United States has, has grown with for Israel? Is it, um, you know, you, you were saying that there, there, there are no, you know, real costs to it for doing it, so, so why not? I, I, I suspect it's a little more complicated than that. Um, that there are competing things, and it's not just an emotional, sentimental attachment to um, to Israel. I feel like a lot of the polemics of the last week and a half have been uh, an attempt to do competitive uh, moralizing, competitive uh, sentimental warfare, sentimental warfare. I don't want to even get into the, the M word because that that gets into like philosophy and the theory of what are morals. But sentimentalizing is to basically say. There are sentimental attachments to Israel, and there are sentimental attachments or sentimental revulsion at the violence of, you know, of what is clearly an uh, unequal uh, war, you know, um, and uh, that it's, it's, it's a conflict of that. Um, again, I don't begrudge you for fighting that. I'm just not any, any the wiser for it. That's, that's my, my main pushback to the to Okay, the, well, to let me question. ask you this. Yeah. So if the, if the goal is— to complicate the story, as you put it, and to introduce moral ambiguity and political strategic ambiguity, just ambiguity, yeah, I guess, yeah, yeah. what does that lead to? Why is that the ultimate end that you're most concerned with? What does that give us? I think it, 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 uh, it helps us understand the world, I think. And I mean, what? That's that's unimportant to you? No, no. But I mean, just... do you, do you? I mean, here's the question: Is is uh, um, isn't that what what you're trying to do always? Is understand what's happening? I mean, isn't that what we're doing right now? Is is trying to understand, you know, what drives me and you about certain things, um, rather than trying to convince? Now, again, I, there's a role for convincing. There's a role for for political podcasts where. Where people are, you know, just riling up the masses and, and rallying the troops for a political cause, and it's 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 partisan and, and all the rest of it. But but it's 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 uh, it's that you know it's it's you know what what really is going on. I mean, I texted you. I, I watched a, a a a Carnegie thing today, and uh, it was really good. What's his first name? I watched Ka- the Khalid? first part of it. Khalid Shikaki, yeah. And we, we, we met with him in, yeah, we in, did. in, in the West Bank. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I remember him also as being one of the best meetings we had. You know, this is, yeah. he was doing all the in-depth polling. And that's where, you know, a lot of my essay, where it really dawned on me that this like two-state solution just ain't happening, uh, specifically on the Palestinian side. And then juxtaposed with all the Israelis we talked to that were basically echoing that. Um, but what, what was great about his little intro there um, is that I, I think without sacrificing any any pathos and humanity, uh, I, I think that that was that was the best little insight uh, about to me about how these interlocking um, blind spots and bad decisions uh, led to the current flare up right now. And as someone who's paying attention to this. I got more out of that those 10 minutes of his intro than almost anything I've read so far. Largely because I think this has been a most of the stuff written is this like weird moral, sentimental and rights-based discourse. That's the thing gotcha. that kills yeah. me about this. Okay, but it's just wh- like it's like oh but the rights of Palestinians not to get bombed. Oh but the right of Israel to defend itself. I mean, I 
and, and this is what I'm getting at about the question of war, which we started on earlier. I don't think that there's a right to defend yourself, and there's not really a right <laughs> to not die in a war. I mean, that's, that's the, the problem with wars. This is why they're so horrible. This is why we should avoid them. But I mean, this is part of this absurdity of like international order as well, which I think is partly most of where I want to push you on all of this stuff is that, I mean, and why I was tweeting some of these things that I think, you know, maybe, maybe uh, horrified you and have gotten me flack over the last week. But it's, it's, it's this concept of, of, you know, it's one can do analysis that is, uh, human and humane that uh, reveals a kind of complexity of the initial situation, gives you a sense of the politics behind all of it, um, and still demands a certain kind of, you know, this is awful, we should not let it go on, um, but doesn't fall back on this kind of ceaseless, endless competitive sentimentality. Okay. Okay. Let me, there's a couple things here. I think it's possible to do both. So I, I don't see why they're opposed in any way. So you can have analyt analytical rigor and complexity, but also have a kind of um, a moral indignation about things that are wrong um, or that you think are wrong. And even I think Shikaki did that in his brief talk where, and I would highly, highly recommend it just five minutes at at the start. He's the first speaker, and we'll include a link in the show notes. He gives a lot of context to Hamas's decisions, yes. in particular, which I don't think has gotten much attention. Um, it also happens to be the case that his analysis sort of overlaps with my priorita prioritization of the democratic process. Yep, he sees the um, the cancellation of elections that were supposed to be going on pretty much this spring. Um, they were canceled by Mahmoud Abbas for somewhat complex reasons we don't have to get into right now. Um, and that put Hamas in a corner because Ham Hamas wanted to, has wanted for quite some time to have elections. Um, and, and if it had been preparing for elections, it probably wouldn't have been lobbing rockets. Um, so you kind of consume people with uh, the ins and outs of democratic proceduralism and they're less likely to fight wars, which is an interesting argument and one that I'm sympathetic to for obvious reasons. Um, but he also says that he's puzzled. Um, and you can tell that he's like, this is like at a fundamental level, he's a Palestinian. He's like, this seems wrong to me. Why isn't Biden doing more to put pressure on Netanyahu? I think it's possible to have, I mean, it doesn't have to be in the same article or in the same talk, but you can I can have one version of myself where I'm going into all the complexities about the motivations of different actors while also being like, this is weird. This is puzzling. Why isn't Biden doing more? Biden should do more. This is not good. Why are the two in, in tension with each other? You know, you know what struck me about it? And maybe it's not fair. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm reading, uh, more into his remarks, but I, I, I found that, that, that juxtaposed to, uh, not juxtaposed, but following on, uh, what I thought were, you know, that first analytical part, which I think is super good. And, um, and really, you know, without doing any sorts of both sides of them, I mean, you don't want to get into the details of, of 
what happened with uh, with Abbas and all that. But what I th- what I thought was fascinating was was basically, and I I didn't get enough time to to dig into it, but the the uh, that what gave Abbas the out to cancel elections was that the Israelis were refusing to allow elections in to Jerusalem. take place in, in Jerusalem, yeah. um, which then gives him an out to do this because he would have lost personal power. That really, I mean, you know, and this is why I, I, I don't think one needs to uh, get into questions of who is to blame for something like this, because this is where I think the moralizing gets really unproductive about it. It's just a series of really dumb decisions, one after the other, fed by the vanity of this dying, you know, despot, Palestinian despot, to avoid not even losing. I mean, that's, I, I, don't, I forget if it was in the opening remarks or in a, in a subsequent remark. Not even he, he, sorry, Fatah wouldn't necessarily, according to his polling, lose the elections had they happened. Um, they were still, Fatah and the dissidents that oppose Abbas still uh, uh, command a, a majority. They would have got like 50% of the vote, according to his polling. But yeah, but including dissidents from the, their, his own faction. Correct. So they're not actually his faction. So the be- point is, though, is he would lose personal power, but Fatah wouldn't oh, necessarily yeah, yeah. lose like, to Hamas. Sorry that Hamas would win. And, yes. that's, and that's, the, that's the thing. So again, you know, you, you get this kind of complexity. And I, the, the, the force of it is, is this was all avoidable for so many reasons, you know, for, for dumb decisions, um, the inability of the Israelis to restrain themselves in those early things, the vanity of Abbas and, you know, Hamas being in a corner, taking advantage of this, you have this now, this carnage happening. And but that, that complexity matters insofar as it tells us the causes of conflict. Why do, why do we care about the causes or origins of conflict? Because we don't want conflict to happen. The, that's the only reason that's relevant. What was powerful to me about it is that he's not making your argument that, like, this is a disproportionate uh, killing that's happening. Um, He is making the argument that this is uh, a tragedy that is spinning out of control. And that, to me anyway, you know, an argument that I would want to make to a policymaker is that um, it's the it's it's not the death and destruction of war as such. It's not the counting of bodies that matters. It's that it is this, uh, this unpredictable thing that it creates a maelstrom that that like just messes up things badly and things go spinning out of control and everything you thought was the status quo ceases to be the status quo. We were talking about this earlier in this episode, right? I mean, that's one of the striking things about this this current bout. Um, that to me is a powerful argument. And so the interest there is. Um, Sure, 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 you know, uh, need to degrade Hamas. Sure, 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 terrorism, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, uh, this could end up being a much bigger shit sandwich than uh, even even a ton of, of, of sort of uh, dead people. And but, I think that's but why what do we was- care about something becoming a bigger shit sandwich? Ultimately, we don't like conflicts because— in part because... Of dead people? No, I don't think so. I mean, I really don't. I, I just don't think I that's... Mean, that's presumably I part of it. That I, it co- I mean... Um, I, think, I think, for example, I, I mean, we have... We, we're constantly flailing about with this, but we have, at any one time, an agenda for the Middle East. I do think that this administration's uh, agenda, again, in that, in that uh, you didn't watch the rest of it, uh, Daniel Kurtzer made, makes the argument, basically, why the he answers... Uh, the question, why is Biden doing nothing? He says, everyone knows what his priorities are. 
insofar as the Middle East has a priority on its ladder, it's JCPOA, and it's probably number four on a list of China, Russia, yeah. climate, and maybe JCPOA then. And so there's an agenda there. Uh, the argument needs to be partly made in terms of that, is that you know if you have any sort of agenda, this is going to screw it up for you in all sorts of ways. And that's, that's an argument to make it. That also, you know, again, it's, it's sort of the flip side of what you're saying. I don't think you sacrifice uh, a humane approach to things by making an argument um, on those terms rather than, than, uh, than, than purely a polemical, sentimental argument about lives. Uh, though, again, the polemical, sentimental argument about lives I, I do think is a narrow political argument within the context of United States domestic politics. That is the argument that Democrats are making right now for as like an attempt to, quite frankly, gain power within the Democratic power structures. That it's, seems and it's, to be somewhat interest based. They have interests within the factionalization of the Democratic Party. Sure, this is an effective mechanism That's, to pursue. Some they probably don't think of it in that kind of cynical way. You don't, but I accused. I, I said to you on Twitter, I was just like, I mean, you're playing politics. That's fine. But I don't think they think that that's what they're doing. I think that they think that they're being moral. It might also happen to overlap with their own self-interest. Right. But this is all to say that self-interest and morality are often like we always want to find moral reasons to explain why we pursue our own self-interest. No one's ever going to be like, well, um, I'm pursuing my own self-interest, and I'm evil for it. Like, no one is actually self-describing in that way. I mean, yeah, sure, look. I mean, we can—these we can. These are these arguments that you try and pull me into the ethical by saying that, like, everything is ethics, that to choose is ethical, and, and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I—okay, fine. I—it's—it's—okay, I, I, uh, how it, about— It's more about, it's more about the, the practice of foreign policy and, and the role of analysis on this. I mean, it's striking. I, just, I noted it here. I just glanced at it again. You said something along the lines of, you know, earlier on, your, 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 your faith in Israel as a democracy, and that as a democracy, you know, uh, you would hope that its behavior abroad would uh, live up to certain standards that one holds for democracy. Um, I think we even—you and I briefly went at something similar on Twitter on this, where, um, you know, you were talking about that the United States would never— uh, you know, do like the level of what Israel's doing. Um, just before this, I, I just went and Googled uh, the the number of civilian casualties of just shock and awe when we pummeled Baghdad. And I think it's just under 8,000 uh, men, women, and children. Civilians, no like combatants, nothing, because it's fucking Iraq. A, B, no terror threat whatsoever. Like, no threat to American lives whatsoever, no matter what Bush and those morons said. Um, and yet, and yet, uh, that was, remember, that was also the dawn of, of like, targeted stuff. Now, again, you'll I, say, I this, we fell short on this. this I want to clarify, I never yeah. said that we would never do that. I said, um, when we have done it, and I gave examples, for example, drone strikes in Afghanistan or Yemen, yeah. signature strikes where... There might be one target, and we get a little bit, you know, shaky on the number of civilian civilians that are in the immediate vicinity. Yeah. Civilians die. There have been a number of those kinds of cases. I said that I would like to think that I would oppose that, and I have opposed that. I, that was one of the reasons I was a critic of Obama's reliance on drone strikes. Mm. Um, that I would want to extend that same skepticism of the official narrative 
in my own country sure. and extend that to Israel. Sure, sure, sure. I mean, I guess, I guess to me, though, is, is, is you know, when you're going to war— uh, as we did in Iraq, not drone wars, not this like counter terror operations, which is these like gray things where you know you just like we think like God, we could just come in and smite someone. The out. question is this: is this more? Is what Israel doing more akin to the two thousand three Iraq War, or is it more akin to these kind of counter terrorism surgical interventions that are brief and clearly two thousand three. Clearly. No, I mean, but they're not trying to overthrow the regime. We were trying to overthrow the regime they in would, 2003. I mean, there's, there's two questions, whether what they're doing to, to in, in Gaza and, uh, and to Hamas is going to be successful. I have many doubts, and, well, I they share, it, and I share most of your criticisms of the efficacy of this strategy. They call it mowing the grass for a reason. But, but the, the, the goal is identical to our goal in 2003. No. We're not trying to over—sorry, I mean— I mean, maybe you don't think Hamas is the regime in in. No, 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 I'm saying it, it is, uh, but Israel isn't actually trying to overthrow the Hamas, quote-unquote, regime in Gaza. At least there's no indication right, thus far that's the goal. They haven't, they haven't gone after Hania or anything like that, so it's right, I guess. That's but they it. would have to do a ground invasion to actually overthrow the Hamas government. Like, you, you can't do it— because they set, last time around in 2014, the 2014 war with Hamas, mm. that lasted 51 days. They had ground troops in there, and they got their asses kicked a bit, if I, if I remember correctly. They sent in troops, and yeah, then, yeah, but, and then but, ended but, up leveling an entire neighborhood. But it wasn't a full-scale effort to overthrow sure, sure. Hamas. Right. They haven't—that has not been what Israel's been trying to do in Gaza. Now, if they did, that would be a different kind of operation and a different kind of strategic— and, and then game. you'd be fine about, no, no, about the, the increased deaths. So, I mean, I, let's get back to the deaths and the counting bodies, which I think actually is, that's the flaw of that kind of argumentation about, about counting bodies on this. Um, is, is if their goal, if their goal was more ambitious to actually, you know, uh, kill the entire leadership of Hamas and just kill all of them, uh, would then the, because again, you know, uh, it's interesting, really, when you think about it, is that, that the extent to which, I mean, this started with the first Gulf War, with those pornographic images of, of, you know, missiles flying in, and you could watch it on CNN, and it's like, oh, strategic, you know, smart bombs, that was like in, in, the, in the first Gulf War, and then, you know, shock and awe and stuff like that, there was a lot of talk about, about um, you know, how much effort the U.S. Uh, military expends, how there's a lawyer always standing by in any sort of strike, even these, like, big bombings, and we we all thrilled on TV watching the great fireworks as Baghdad sky was lit up with these firebombs and ooh, yeah, we're getting that bad guy. Yeah, he killed 8,000 people. Um, civilians. We killed 8,000 civilians in that uh, attack on Baghdad in order to, you know, dislodge a regime. Now, And that's one of the reasons it was a fundamentally unjust war that, you know, was one of my critical I, it, formative moments of being in the anti-war movement in that regard. I, it's it's the it's the idea of a just war. I think it was a stupid war because you know, like now, well, now, it was also an unjust war. Well, I mean, why, why, what's I mean, a just war? I, I just I, I don't mean, I don't I I don't re, I, I I don't have that I don't have that instinct. <laughs> and it's like just war theory is one of these things that Christians love to talk about. It's just like a bunch of like hot air flying in my face. Okay, but how about this? I mean, don't you think it's better? To have a lawyer looking over the shoulder of a policymaker when they're deciding who to shoot at or drone or whatever, because that actually is better than the alternative of not having a lawyer looking over one's shoulder. That actually does limit the number of people killed. Keeping all other things equal 
having a lawyer probably minimizes. Okay, maybe but, not. But the Israelis have lawyers. Do presumably at least Dershowitz okay. claims that they have lawyers there. And so, so you want the lawyer That's better to, than the alternative and, of not having. And them. so this is my point about like the alternative, which you you, you gestured at, at fascism of this like wet dream of people wanting to see Leveled, Gaza raised. Yeah, I think it's but 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 the the the, the question then becomes is you know. Um, your argument for 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 all of this ends up being is, is yeah the, the lawyers aren't being judicious enough they should be doing less the israelis should be doing less in their attempt to suppress no i don't think it's about fire. the lawyers i think it's 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 about a broader the problem is the hmm. problem with the polemical argument for me is this is that that on the one hand it's like make the violence stop we all hate to see dead people like and we all hate that you know i mean the the argument you you brought up uh, what's it called um, Yemen earlier, uh, but you know it, the 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 kind of feeling that United States is 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 complicit in something like this, you know, and that's the the heartstrings you're, you're pulling on. Um, I I just think it's 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 more complicated than uh, all of that. Of course, it's yeah. complicated. Yeah, but okay. So a couple of things yeah. that I can that I can maybe try to push you on. Mm. If the goal is to produce policy change and moral arguments are at least in part effective, and if we believe in them, why wouldn't we employ them? Is that, do you want another question? You just want I mean, to I have others, yeah. but why don't I'm just curious. Just um, so we it's, it's, it's fine to employ them. I'm, I'm, I'm leery of them being employed uh, in isolation. Um, I think but, that, that but if I they're think, effective, because you're all about, so well, your I mean, focus is power. So like, my, my, my question, my counter question to you is, is do you have a vision beyond stopping this killing that you're advocating for and trying to get at? Oh, addressing and, and, the root causes, as I, in my landing piece, yeah. I was very clear about yeah. this. It's not just, this is not about the Gaza conflict. Yeah. This is about a fundamentally unequal power imbalance See, that has to be addressed. That gap has to be closed. There's no other way. Otherwise, we're going to keep on having periodic wars every five to six years. And and the argument for those periodic wars, and again, we started talking about this. This was my big takeaway from our trip to Israel. It's like, you know, ugly as they are, uh, the Israelis seem to have concluded, perhaps erroneously, but they have concluded that this is sustainable. Um we don't have to agree with that. You don't have to agree with it. Uh, but the U.S. as a matter of policy doesn't. And it is, I think if you asked most U.S. policymakers, they would say that there is a strategic interest in helping resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. If that continues to be something that successive administrations try to pursue, then we have to ask ourselves, how do we get closer to that goal? Unless we want to just be like, that isn't. In America's national interest, we aren't supporting a two-state solution. We we aren't trying to resolve the conflict. That's a different conversation. But up until now, the last several administrations from Bill Clinton on have actually made this one of their, well, except for Trump, I guess. Yeah. Oh, actually, well, even Trump kind of pretended in a way. Kind like of pretended a, a in a way. A sort of fake peace plan or yeah, whatever. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 this is why, you know, when I said that, that Obama's the, the, the real uh, father of the uh, Abraham Accords. Father of Abraham. The father of Abraham, Obama, <laughs> um, is, is that, that uh, if, you, if you take that, you know, sort of uh, little snippet even a little seriously, um, which I think you should, not you, but one should, this is that, that, in fact, it's under Obama that the priority shifted. And Obama's ideal for the Middle East, uh, which I know you disagreed with, 
is one of disentangling the United States which, from the Middle East. Now, which didn't work out so good. Didn't work out in the sense that JCPOA did not hold in the in the in in the. And the Middle East became a shit show. Didn't didn't work out in the sense that like JCPOA has not held under Trump. It was abrogated. Interestingly, however, the lasting uh, end result of it is that that it did lead to a reconfiguration of forces in the Middle East, of which the greatest losers are the Palestinians, I agree, because their cause became completely pulled out of the others. It's striking to me that the priority of the Obama of the Biden administration is to restore JCPOA, which signals to me a desire to continue Obama's policy, which while Obama did allow Kerry to go waste a lot of time trying to solve the uh, Israel-Palestine debate, was not his priority either. His priority was get the fuck out. So arguably, we have three successive administrations right now pursuing the same policy, which is get us out of the Middle East. And it clearly doesn't work. I mean, there's a uh, lesson here. What, what no do you matter mean? how much you try to disentangle yourself from the Middle East, the Middle East is going to come and, you know— I don't know uh, what what the right term is, stab you in the back or be a, like a major problem for you. Or, so, um, so, so the problem for the Biden administration right now is that their uh, full-throated and I would say ill-conceived idea to, uh, to scream from the rooftops that they are committed to a human rights first they're not, approach though. to the world. Oh, to the to the world, I guess. Yeah, has, but not to the Middle East. That 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 has taken a beating, and so the Middle East has done that to them. That was their mistake to declare that. Well, but and and because their real policy is to disentangle from the Middle East. So, so in the sense that like it's a rhetorical aspiration that they screwed up at making, you know. And now the Middle East has gotten its revenge, or something like that. But I, I still think their policy is one to not care about is that Israel, wise? Palestine, so you, you so, because they want out right okay but is that wise to want out of a region that is actually of strategic importance to the u.s and always reasserts itself in our imagination no matter how much we try to separate ourselves make, from it make the strategic case for me and i mean the, the middle, that the middle east matters yeah i mean and that's one of those things that that keeps popping up if the uh, middle east doesn't matter then does anything really matter i guess china then you would just be left with maybe china that's it yeah. Otherwise, arguably. you can make an argument that literally nothing is of existential importance. Maybe climate change. I'm not particularly persuaded about that, yeah. as we talked about in a previous episode. But I guess it's existential ultimately. But then again, like, I mean, everything is ex. I mean, death. Well, whatever. No, look, look the, the 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 there's there's. Uh... There's a changing energy picture that, in fact, does degrade the strategic importance of the Middle East. I, I've uh, never been persuaded that oil is the fundamental reason th that the Middle East matters. I mean, yes, imports from Saudi Arabia have pretty much dropped down to zero. I don't think that changes the fundamental question here. No, I mean, it's not that it's it matters directly to the United States. I mean, I think the, the, the more supple argument for that is that uh, we haven't decarbonized so much, and even though the U.S. is now a swing producer due to fracking and the rest of this, um, uh, and can you know uh, mitigate disruptions in the Middle East, uh, there's a broader strategic interest in maintaining order within the Middle East because uh, the global economy still relies on oil to an ex ex extremely large amount. So, in fact, uh, having some level of order there matters. 
I, I, what's, that's a, that's not what's, the main argument, though. But what's the main argument for the Middle East mattering apart from the lives of Middle Eastern people? That what people happens people? in the Middle East doesn't stay in the Middle East. And it never has. Like, this is the thing. Like, how, how, how much do we have to be reminded of this basic fact? Obama thought that the Middle East didn't matter. And I have actually made the argument in a piece. I didn't extend it because it's, it's sort of like a somewhat speculative argument. I don't think that Trump would have been elected president if it wasn't for Obama's non-intervention in Syria. Hmm. Well, I didn't read that piece. (laughs) Where was that? Because Obama's failure to intervene and take the Syrian civil war seriously um, led to one of the worst refugee crises in in modern history, which led to the refugee spillover that actually changed the very makeup of Europe. So let's just, assuming we have an interest in Europe's future, which I think many Americans would say is actually one of our strategic interests to care about the future of our closest allies in Europe, I do think it's worth wondering and considering um, how much Europe was affected in any number of ways. The rise of right-wing populism, the looking inward the um the crumbling of european unity or coordination on any number of issues because of what the syrian civil war and its spillover effects did to the european project that's number 1 but when we look at trump one of trump's major campaign issues had to do with the threat of terrorism coming from the middle east and that was intimately intertwined with the syrian civil war that's not it's not it wasn't even intimately intertwined with the syrian civil war it was literally part of the syrian civil war the rise of isis the muslim ban let's not forget that was one of his signature issues we forget about it now because it's like no one cares about terrorism all that much in the u.s now it is worth remembering at that particular moment in 2016 that was in the top two or three issues um, for our country, for a country, and certainly for Donald Trump, because ISIS was on in the headlines on a regular basis, um, and we were worried about the spillover effects uh, with lone wolves. That was really a big part of the national discourse, and Trump specifically drew on those fears to make his case that we had to shut down the borders. Even when it came down to our southern border, he would talk about how terrorists might infiltrate from our southern border. So it's just worth, like, that probably wouldn't have been expected in uh, 2012 or 2008. But the fact that terrorism has been a major issue for the U.S. for, I don't know, 16 or 17 of the last 20 years since 9-11. So anyway, the bigger point here is that in a way that Obama wouldn't have expected Trump was able to weaponize this issue, and he was able to gain more support through his ability to employ the language of fear, specifically about the Syrian civil war and its spillover effects, i.e. the rise of ISIS and terrorism. Hmm. I mean, the reason I'm conflicted, (laughs) the reason I'm conflicted on on this is because, you know, when you you invoke the European project, it's it's, one of the the healthiest things that uh, that could have happened to the European project is that the comeuppance that uh, the kind of sunny optimism of liberal you know order 
took from the Middle East blowing up in its face. Um, so I, you know, I, 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 I have very mixed feelings about that. Like I, I wait, you, you think the comeuppance was ultimately healthy uh, because it's, it's an, it's a nonsense world that those people were living in uh, before, before all of that happened. So uh, in that sense, I, 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 you know, I, I, uh, where, where the, the, the threat of terror attacks is much, you know, has proven to be much more real is, is Europe, and, and that's a, a serious problem for them. Um, but the, and it's not something to wish on them. Uh, but overall, I, 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 I don't <laughs> I, I, I don't follow you full on, on, that, on that line of do argument. Do we have an interest in minimizing the prospects of terrorist activity in European allied countries? Uh, I, think, I think the Europeans need to wake up and start dealing with the world okay. around them. Well, and, that's, and they're doing that now. And, and they're doing it in a way... Uh, and partly that's that's a large problem of them on on Trump. Uh, uh, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I, I got to say, though, like ever since the fucking Iraq war, uh, the GWOT global war on terror, I can't help but like puke in my mouth every time that gets. I agree that gets with invoked. you. I think it's, it's, a, it's a garbage. But I'm just it's saying a garbage that's issue. where we ended up. I don't think Obama would have become president if it wasn't for his opposition to the Iraq war. Let's not forget that one of Obama's against signature campaign issues was the fact that he was right on the Iraq war again like we wouldn't have expected that on on the day after 9-11 that this guy who no one who had no one had heard of who had a Muslim father who um, would become president like eight years later that's a thing we don't always anticipate how the Middle East figures in the American story Ahead of time, yeah. I mean, I guess. I, what I, do you mean I, you guess? I, it, I, it doesn't. It, look, <laughs> I, I see. I don't see the the Middle East as as uh, you know. Uh, I just the the cause of of one of the the, the stupidest decisions in the in the history of the 20th century which was the invasion of iraq like okay really, that happened right it happened because we had a really dumb president who was okay. motivated who was motivated and manipulated through simple appeals to values among other things so maybe in an ideal world so we had a we would president. have presidents who were very like sober-minded and wouldn't let the middle east push them in well, so, any of these directions well, but the problem is the problem is the problem is 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 the sentimental is the prevalence of sentimental arguments but if and, we take that as a given so there so clearly even biden so biden and obama weren't able to fully extract themselves from the middle east we'll see what biden um, okay. manages to do i mean he's just started and we'll see maybe maybe he buckles and and but what feels if my like argument to- is that there will there will never be a president who's able to follow through on obama's dream because of the sentimental attachments whether it's to the Holy Land for religious reasons or for human rights reasons or whatever it might be, because we care about civilian casualties in places like Gaza, if we take that as a given that at least one of the two major parties in the U.S., and even the other one cares about the Middle East for, like, the opposite reason, because they don't like Muslims, and they want to, like, they want to, like— make Muslims suffer, I guess, or something. Maybe that's one of the, like, the animating features there. Clearly, and evangelicals clearly have an abiding interest in what happens in the Holy Land. So it it doesn't, the case that we can sort of stop caring about the Middle East doesn't seem strong for either of the two major parties. I guess, you know, we're, we're sort of spinning around a lot of these, these issues and, and coming back and forth. Um, can I ask you about justice? Sure. You said something on Twitter. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I think it was something along the lines of, I don't know, justice doesn't matter. Is or, that what I said? I, I th- was, was, what? 
Uh, I mean, I might have said that. I think the, was it the one that actually got me in trouble? Wait, which one got you in trouble? The one that got me in trouble was just like uh, appeals, like arguments from justice, I think, and rights uh, are uh, are those wielded by the weak against the strong. Okay. Oh, yes. Was that the one? That's also kind of interesting and controversial. Yeah. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with There's nothing weak- wrong with it, but I mean, I think it, it gets at something that, that, that the Dersh was... was uh, was uh going at you with which was you know um i mean i was just thinking because i i had been reading uh rereading the machiavelli no nietzsche's uh genealogy of morals where he really just like makes the argument that, that most of our these morals are in fact you know uh the argument and he makes the case you know unlike his more uncharitable readers and his fascist followers um that you know this is not something that you know we should be like bemoaning he's not he's not a a a um a fetishizer of the the mindless strong um that morality comes from appeals from the weak to overcome the strong that's that's basically you know nietzsche's argument in that book that you know the 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 origin of of christian morality is is the the weak being you know facing a stronger foe and making conjuring up this entire uh worldview that you know in the afterlife uh, the meek shall inherit the earth. That in fact the the strong are wicked. Um, that you know there's goodness in 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 weakness. Basically. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. All of that. All of that. But that's. I and, mean, that's a pretty compelling argument. I mean, it's a theological argument. Is but all it's I was, good because it gives the weak the the um, the capability and the resources intellectually and morally to actually pursue their objectives and to level the plan, whatever you want to say. I mean, to liberate themselves. If we're talking even more broadly about self-determination and wars of liberation that ended colonialism, you wouldn't have that if you didn't have the weak being able to quite literally and also figuratively weaponize morality. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a historian of the uh, decolonialization, um, uh, period enough to be able to say that uh, it's it's the moral arguments that 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 won the day as opposed to not won the day but mobilized people and made them think that they could change their lives and change their their communities and their governments. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I, I guess it's 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 uh, you know I fall back on 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 this in terms of I'm I, I just. Part of what also makes me skeptical of your kinds of arguments on these things is that um, while it's fine that it, it mobilizes people, and that's you know something I can certainly like measure and point to, I think there's an assumption uh, behind a lot of these arguments that um, these things such as justice actually exist, um, as opposed to being... Um, sort of epiphenomenal of uh, the will to enforce claims, uh, individual claims, rather than, than true claims or false claims, but just individual claims. That is to say, a moral argument, I think, is a sentimental argument uh, that makes sense, that makes full sense within a political order like a state, because rights and justice and all these things only make sense within a system that is able to enforce claims to it or adjudicate these things. 
I'm deeply skeptical when people start invoking these things in the international scope um, as if they're true. Now, and this is I, maybe this gets really at the heart of what sort of you know what I maybe I'm pushing you on as well is that, and you even in Twitter I think admitted as much is that your argument is within the scope of the United States to motivate the United States to do something that you want the United States to do in the anarchic world. You may think it's the correct thing to do, but it's like your opinion, man. And and the uh, the thing I I. I I think is weird in these arguments is that the appeals are made as if these things exist outside of the United States, as if they're not just sentimental appeals to the United States, as if they appeal to a transcendent truth, which I don't think is really exists. But I do believe there's a transcendent truth. No, sure. Yeah, I know. And you think the United States should enforce it and be the kind of, you know, um, uh, it should enforce a moral order in the world is where you're coming from. Um, that's a simplification, but yeah, sure. But yeah, right. I mean, not. I. It's a simplification, but it's not really a simplification. I think that's really what it comes down to, and that's. <laughs> it's. It's. And and I think that's 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 the crux of my discomfort. That if if you if you can you know if you can pin down where I'm uncomfortable it's with that. your okay. argumentation. Is Let that. me ask you this then. Yeah. As we start to wind down. Yeah. If I had my way, and we were able to assess the world after I have my way 30 years from now, Mm -hmm. and then in a parallel universe, you have your way, and we're able to assess your view, your approach to the world implemented 30 years later, and if my approach leads to less people killed on the aggregate level Mm. in wars Mm. or in civil conflicts or civil wars... Would that be enough of an argument that my approach is better than yours? Like, isn't it isn't it plausible so, that my approach would lead to better outcomes? Let's say it lead my approach would lead to four million people less killed, which is actually a very small percentage of the overall population over thirty years. That's still four million lives that would have been saved. Um, I'll just, I think at the end here, also point out that. Over the course of the last hour and a half, or however long we've been going at it, I don't think I've made a single positive argument for what our policy should be. I, I think I've been pretty careful about, it. and in all my sort of sniping in the last uh, week and a half, I've not once said uh, the United States should do X, Y, or Z uh, to tackle this problem. Yeah, uh, and I so I, I stick by that. So I'm not sure exactly. If I had my way versus if you had your way, how you'd even measure that. But that gets to a deeper problem, which is to say that, you know, uh, I don't know. What, your way be simply being not my way. But what's the what's absence that? of me? No, 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 no. But I mean, look, my my way is uh, injecting doubt into the body politic. That's my way, and therefore, inje- my way is merely is merely prudential. That's all I'm advocating at any one time. And it's true. I need I need people like you to like push back on and be like, whoa, 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 there, shoddy, you know. But that's all I'm doing. Um, I mean, perhaps in other oh, but, on I, other subject areas that that like I may know more. I I, I may try and do a, a more positive thing. But I've said this to you before, maybe not on the podcast. But that's one of the things that I find most difficult and infuriating uh, about doing think tank work. It's you know what you've you, what you've 
talked about in, in books in terms of that, like, you know, the last chapter problem. The worst thing about think tank stuff is like what I think is a good paper, then I'm forced to write five things policy that we should be doing. And and I'm like, dude, if you've read my paper, my policy recommendation is that like basically all of your things that are on your shelf are probably broken. Like we need to think through even more deeply about this stuff. That's why I'm a crap think tanker. But like that's that's my way. So I'm not sure – Basically, the, the problem of, of juxtaposing your way with my way is that like my way is to point out that even that measurement is impossible outside of some sort of godly thing because there's so many variables at any one point, and we really should try and take them into account as much as possible as we figure out what we want to do, um, that, that uh, I, I'm not sure that, you know, even in a like a college dorm room bull session when we're counting the dead after 30 years of implementation of an ideal policy i'm not sure it makes sense oh i feel is like that a dodge i feel like that's a bit of a dodge i feel like you're not willing to follow through with the implications of your own argument what are, what are, what are the implications of my own argument that we should let's, be more ruthless let's say that no no let's say that let's simply state that you are the national security advisor mm-hmm for whatever 10 years 20 years this is all hypothetical no there but, would obviously be a policy in place that would be different than the policy that i would implement if i was the national security advisor so i i don't think i'm not even sure that's true that our policies would actually be that really? different i think just that what what why i would what would drive me up the wall is that that you would articulate it in terms of we need to save these babies and whereas presumably would, there would be some babies saved I mean, if we made okay. it a priority that's fine but i mean i, I don't think that that solves any any of or or it doesn't even address the the questions that matter i guess is where i'm coming at it from <laughs> and and that's and and it's 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 you know uh on the middle east which i'm i'm far from an expert on uh i guess it's it's weighing it in terms of of uh relative importance you've made a case that you know it it's it's a determinant factor in our politics though i don't think you've made a case that it's a determinant factor in our politics in a way that we can safely say that it, you know, will or won't. Like, I mean, that it brought Trump on, sure. I mean, that we were obsessed with terrorism. I, I you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, it's like, it's tied to our weird psyche and about our, our yeah. weird approach and the, to the, the world. The weird psyche isn't something that can be changed very easily overnight. We are who we are. No, what I'm saying is just like, fix the Middle East or you get more Trumps doesn't strike me as like a particularly interesting argument is what I'm getting that, at. I think it's way more complicated than yeah, that. Yeah, that, you know? that wasn't my argument. My argument is that that happened. Yeah. And other things might happen that we can't anticipate in the future that make the Middle East more relevant. So... Anyway, yeah, no. So, so what I'm getting at is that 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 uh, I, you know, I, I think you and I could probably come together on a uh, like a coherent approach to uh, why um, the Israel-Palestine conflict needs to be addressed. I have to say that after my trip, I'm like really out of ideas of of like what is even possible. And I mean, you know, if I was to really devote myself to this as, you know, a new career to do something like this, I think it's fascinating to really think outside the box and what, what are possible solutions to this. I'm deeply pessimistic about the possibility of solving this because um, I just, I, I mean, I just, I just don't see a way out ultimately out of it, you know? Uh, and that also influences part of my skepticism about just sort of moral arguments, which I think what's again, Maybe I'll end on this. What's most striking is what I said earlier, is that though you say that now this is an issue that has reemerged, 
To me, the most striking thing is that it has reemerged without anything more than a moral argument behind it. That is to say, all of the other geostrategic arguments for solving it have have been chipped away. Now, you can try and rebuild those but linkages. But wouldn't that make the case that morality matters if morality alone was able to push this back onto the top of the U.S. agenda, whether we like it or not? That shows Don't you think that it's moral- f- morality ha- as a cause has an effect. Don't you think it's going to fall off like next week? Do you think like you'll you'll be you'll be on TV next week after after the 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 potentially a ceasefire is called on Friday? No, but I, I like I think there's an argument to be made that it will matter for the Biden administration. Maybe not as a top priority, but they're going to have to pay more attention to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we'll have to wait and see, and that'll actually be a pretty good test of of the broader argument of how long the Middle East stays relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine that in the coming years, there will be a number of crises in the Middle East and more broadly in Muslim-majority countries that bring us back, that, fo- that focus our attention. I don't know, mm-hmm. but that'll be a good test. That's a good place to end, I think. All right, Shadi. This is good. Yeah. This is good. All right, man. <laughs> okay. See you soon. Bye, Demir.